God selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him, and that he cared about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 36, Ecumenism Month, Jewish Lewis, After Hours with Dr. Yakov Weinstein. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been talking about love and we worked our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. But we're now in Ecumenism Month, speaking to people who love C.S. Lewis from a diverse range of religious backgrounds, Calvinism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Mormonism, and today we wrap things up with Judaism. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Yakov Weinstein. Dr. Weinstein is a physicist for the MITRE Quantum Information Science Group and lives in East Brunswick, New Jersey, and he blogs at Torah from Narnia. Dr. Weinstein, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here. Now, I can't actually quite remember how I came across it, but I first discovered you on the Tradition podcast where you were talking about C.S. Lewis. And as you were wrapping up that interview, you mentioned your blog, Torah from Narnia. And so I immediately typed it in and spent several hours reading your thoughts about Lewis and Narnia from a Jewish perspective. And I thought this would be a really great way to wrap up this series that we're doing at the moment. Well, first of all, thank you so much for finding me, David. I'm not quite sure how you did it either. I'm really impressed that you did. But I think it is it is especially appropriate as you were reading uh, The Four Loves this uh, this season. And that's what the podcast and my article was about. I was probably Googling something and somehow <laughs> Google returned that interview to me. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you did. Now, today I'm drinking a cup of tea made with a very posh tea bag, which my sister-in-law <clears throat> liberated from a hotel that she was staying at. And needless to say, I made the cup of tea myself because, as we know, he brews. The jokes will not get any better than this. If if you hated that, you're not going to enjoy this podcast. <laughs> Are you drinking anything? So I am. Um, uh, so as as you know, David, Thursday was the holiday of Purim, and um, mm-hmm. we as as Jews do share a uh, food and drink uh, during that day. And so someone sent me this aha uh, sparkling water with lime and watermelon flavor. We'll try it out. See how it goes. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. I had never realized what Purim was until I got really into the Maccabees, and they did a song <laughs> about Purim, and that was that was how I learned. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works is great, but uh, the the character of Esther is a very famous one in the United States. There's actually a whole book now on Esther in America. Mm. Uh, very interesting. Cool. Well, we are toasting a patron supporter today. Christopher Buchanan. And for our toast, I thought I'd use my favorite blessing from the Torah, which is found in the book of Numbers. Christopher, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. L'chaim. L'chaim. And that's a nod to one of my wife's favorite movies, uh, Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof. <laughs> Had to be done. <laughs> so, Yakov, can you just please introduce yourself? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks so much, David. So my name is Jakob Weinstein, as David mentioned. I am an Orthodox Jew, and so I perhaps represent a slightly different perspective, uh, as you may have had more recently on this on this podcast. Um, I'm married to my wife, Liara, for the past 22 years. We have uh, five children, ages 11 to 21. And as as you said, I work uh, as a physicist for, for the MITRE Corporation, which is a government contractor. 
And for those who are unfamiliar with modern-day Judaism, I mentioned to you before the show, I don't think I ever met anybody who practiced the Jewish faith until I moved to the United States. I would occasionally see an Orthodox Jew in London, but that was about it. So would you mind just sketching for us a little bit of what modern-day Judaism looks like and some of the main groups? As with Christianity, you can go to infinitesimal detail. We don't need that, but just, just in broad strokes, what does Judaism look like today? Sure. And, you know, pl please, please do remember that, uh, this is one person's view of this, uh, of Judaism. If you put two Jews in a room, as the old adage goes, you will get at least three opinions. Um, <laughs> so this is my perspective and should not be necessarily uh, aligned with anybody else. But, um, as, uh, as you mentioned, David, there are, there are currently what we, where we'd say three streams of Judaism, um, Orthodox, conservative, and reform. Um, and the generation of that really goes back to the Enlightenment. Um, if we talk about European history, um, then the Jews for, for a long time in Europe were in their, in, in the ghettos. They were not part of, uh, regular civil, regular civilization. And with the, um, with the coming of the Enlightenment, um, the non-Jewish world around started looking and saying, well, you know, Jews are people too, and therefore they should also have a place in, in society. And that raised this uh, very intense debate and question for, for Jews. Um, they had been in the ghetto for so long that there was a lot, of, a lot to be said, well, maybe we should just stay here. Um, if we go into the greater society, maybe we'll assimilate. And that's really where a lot of this comes from. So Reform Judaism at that time um, made a conscious decision to try to assimilate uh, more fully. Um, they, for example, removed from the liturgy any hope of returning to Jerusalem, any mention of sacrifices in the temple, um, and various other reforms, and hence, hence their name. Um, some of that has been walked back, um, nonetheless, in, that, in, in the sense of commandments, um, mitzvot, um, they are not regarded then as, 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 as binding. Um, and again, there's going to be a range in, within Reform Judaism, but in a so I'm only speaking in generalities. The uh, opposite end then was was Orthodox, and that is a name that was foisted upon us from from without. Um, you know, Orthodox Jews such as myself don't consider ourselves Orthodox per se. We're just trying to trying to keep tradition. Um, mm -hmm. Though obviously lots has changed, such as clothing and various things like that. And so that was the idea that no, um, Jews can survive um, in a traditional way, even in the modern world, even while interacting with the non-Jewish world around us. And of course, there's going to be different um, different perspectives on that. Do we fully integrate? Do we integrate partially? Do we try to actually really keep ourselves in the ghetto and integrate as little as possible? But the common denominator for for Orthodox Jews are the are are the desire to keep tradition, um, the commands of the of, of the Torah, the laws of the rabbis out, as outlined in the Talmud, and then further you know, further works beyond that, uh, as much as you know, as much as we can, as as much as our ancestors always have. Um, conservative Judaism is actually an American um, invention. Um, the idea was really to conserve, um, as and, and again, as opposed to reform, which was which was more um, more liberal and more changing. Uh, conservative looked to conserve. Um, they became more distinguished from what became Orthodoxy as Jews started coming in from Russia in the 1880s, um, and then from you know Eastern, from other parts of Eastern Europe, especially after the Holocaust. Um, and they took on conservative Judaism took on a more historical Jewish um, path. 
perhaps, and again, there's a wide range, wide range within conservative Judaism, compromising on certain traditions. So for example, in conservative synagogues, you'll find generally um, mixed seating as opposed to Orthodox Judaism, where you'll find separation between uh, the genders uh, and a number of things similar to that. Okay. So chances are then um, in, in England, there is the, the, the Jewish presence in Europe is a lot more muted, I would say, than, than, than in America. Um, in America, Jews tend to be loud, boisterous. I guess it depends <laughs> how close you are to New York, but um, um, they're much more, you know, much more out in front. Um, while in Europe, things are kept much more muted. For example, in, in, in Europe, even the most um, Orthodox of Jews, England is possibly an exception, but even the most Orthodox of Jews aren't necessarily going to wear anything that's publicly Jewish when they are out uh, out on the street. In the United States, you know, I've gone with my with my yarmulke or kippa if you want to go for Yiddish or, or Jewish. And in every state, in every state I've ever been to, including states where there are no Jews, and you know, at the end of the day, no one really seems to care too much. Um, that would definitely not happen in Europe. I visited an Orthodox deacon in San Francisco. And we got together and had a drink. And he said that whenever he walks around San Francisco, he says, I wear my cassock. I'm not the weirdest thing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, San Francisco has its, uh, has its characters for sure. But even, in, you know, even if you're talking about in the Midwest or, uh, or even in, more, in, in the Bible Belt in the South, certainly if you see anybody who's outwardly Jewish, um, chances are they're, ortho they're Orthodox. And that's what you are. And what are some distinctives in terms of what does worship look like? What is, as we would say, what does going to church look like for you? <laughs> so, um, so Orthodox Jews pray three times a day, um, and that comes the the source of that is from the Book of Daniel. Um, so it's morning, afternoon, evening. Um, in general, we try as much as possible to have prayers in a quorum, which is ten adult Jewish males. Um, and thus in a synagogue, though one can pray at home as well, um, and is required to do so if not able to attend a synagogue. So um, the, the prayer service itself, you know, we, the, the synagogue is, as I mentioned before, separate genders with a, a wall, not necessarily a full wall, but at least it's a, a barrier in between. Um, the prayer service is, of course, all in, all in Hebrew. Saturdays, which we call Shabbat, that is a longer service and includes also reading the Torah. And um, depending on where you go, sometimes the rabbi will speak or not speak. And then, of course, there are various holidays, um, such as Purim, which we just had last week, and Passover, which will be um, actually this podcast is going to come out on Passover. And so there are then other things, other traditions, uh, other, other liturgy uh, that take place in the synagogue and at home as well. Okay, I think that's given us a really good base because a lot of our listeners are Christian. And honestly, a Christian's understanding of Judaism really stops at about the first century. Which are you, a Pharisee, a Sadducee? You, we might know if you're an Essene. Um, so it, it's really good to sort of just br br bring context up uh, up to date a little bit. And so people understand where you're going to be coming from as you, as you engage the stuff that Lewis wrote. Speaking of which, let's talk about Lewis. How did you first encounter him? And what was it that you liked about him? So I think as, as you, David, and as, uh, as I think most of your guests, I first encountered Lewis through the Chronicles of Narnia. And of course, the Chronicles of Narnia remain my favorite uh, work of, of Lewis. Um, and that happened when I was probably eight, you know, maybe nine. And even, even at that age, I knew, of course, that it was a Christian work for based on the presence, of course, of, of Father Christmas and, and the celebration of Christmas and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But that never bothered me because, you know, I mean... 
I live, you know, we live in a not totally Jewish society. So all Jews know about, know about Christmas. Even as kids, we were told by our parents, you know, you know, Santa Claus is not real. Parents are really ones who put the presents under the tree. Just don't tell your non-Jewish friends that because you don't want to, you don't want to disappoint them. And so, you know, so already at a young age, I knew it was, I, I knew there was at least written by a Christian author. And even, you know, I would say even, I don't know if it was before I was 10 or not too long, too long after I was 10, I realized that the sacrifice of Aslan um, was parallel to Jesus and that there was something else going on in the book because we learned about, you know, we learned about Christianity because it is the um, uh, majority culture in the United, United States. And again, not in any sort of bad way. This is just how, this is just how things are. But never, it never particularly bothered me because I liked the books. You know, as time went on and it probably, you know, went through college and, and graduate school, and I had not read C.S. Lewis in a while. Um, and I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia again at some point, probably in my late teens or early 20s. And I was like, wow, this is really Christian. Um, <laughs> which I kind of knew, but like I didn't really, you know, feel it um, uh, as, as much. I'm like, this is, this is really Christian. But you know what? There's some really interesting messages here. Um, things that can inspire me to be a better human, a better person, a better religious person, and help me in my relationship with God. And so from there, um, I started branching out a little bit, first to the Sweet Tape Letters. And then I think it was actually my wife who bought me uh, The Four Loves. And then more le- recently, you know, some, of, some additional works uh, as well. And you have a blog, Torah from Narnia. What made you get serious and actually start <laughs> writing down your thoughts about this? So, so uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I do find um, a lot of the themes that Lewis brings up and, and, and his characters as well in certain cases um, are inspiring for me as a, as a religious Jew. And I felt it was appropriate to share that um, with some of my fellow co-religionists. And so um, periodically I will uh, speak, not necessarily in a sermon, but either speak or give give classes at my synagogue. And uh, And one day I gave a I gave a talk about um, always winter and never Christmas. And the idea of that was the importance of the rhythm of the yearly cycle Hmm. and how what happened in Narnia was the pause of that rhythm and thus became such a desolate and hopeless type of place and how that rhythm is necessary for for all of us um, as um, as humans, um, and especially as, as religious humans, as we go through the yearly cycle of holidays. So um, after I gave that talk, a friend of mine came over to me and said, Yo, Yaakov, I don't think I've ever heard the word Christmas used that many times in a synagogue. And that's what I'm about. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, you're probably correct. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and, and so then I started like saying, you know, maybe maybe there are other people out there who are interested in this. Um, or are there other Jews out there who are interested in this? I have actually no idea. And so I started saying, I'm going to start a blog. And my kids were my kids were like laughing at me, like, yeah, yeah, you're going to start a blog. You're going to start a blog. And then, you know, I said, like, no, 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 dad. I'm going to start a blog. We tore from Narnia. Everybody's going to love it. And, um, and then like during Corona, I was like, all right, I'm really going to do this. And so, you know, I used my minimal computer skills and said, let's see what I can do. And <laughs> hence it started. And I was probably, there aren't too many people interested in it, but it's, 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 it's good for myself. I like writing again, like being able to, uh, you know, sharpen ideas and, and like. Well, when I heard that first interview, I, I was wondering, I wonder what makes somebody do this? Because as a Christian, I have read a number of books by Jewish authors, uh, you know, modern day rabbis. And that to me sort of makes sense because Christianity looks to some of the same scriptures. The Christian liturgical tradition grew out of the liturgies of the synagogue and the home. 
So that I can understand. But what makes somebody look to Christianity when they're not a Christian? And and I like what you said that, that there's truths there. And in the book that we read this season, The Four Loves, Lewis has that line, whatever isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Correct. And, you know, I think if I could, if I could use like a, a parallel, um, you know, if we, if we go back to, uh, to Genesis and the story of Jacob's dream, Jacob goes to, goes to sleep on his way out of the land of Canaan um, as he's traveling um, north to escape, the, uh, to escape from his brother. And, uh, and he lies down in a, in a holy place and he has a dream of angels going up and down the ladder. And um, that's certainly an inspirational story, but our, you know, our sages in, in the Talmud aren't satisfied with the story itself. They ask, well, what angels were they that were going up and down the ladder? Was it random angels? Was it specific angels? And so there are a number of uh, suggestions that are given. But one of the suggestions is that each of those angels are representative of a nation. And the nations, as they um, build up societies, they, they start climbing the ladder and they get closer to God, right? Because God is the one who's standing on the ladder in, in, in Jacob's dream. And that tells us something important, um, which is that any society that's constructive and that lasts has some wisdom to it, mm -hmm. right? It has to, or else it wouldn't get closer to God. And so as an eternal religion, um, we, we, any eternal religion, would want to know the sum total of all human intelligence or of all human knowledge. What does all of humanity learn about God? And so it's important then, from my perspective, that there be somebody, you know, I'd like, to have, I'd like there to be some Jew who knows about Confucius and some Jew who knows about the wisdom of India. And there's some Jew that needs... And, I don't need to know that because I can't know the sum total of human human wisdom. But somebody as a whole, right? If you want to be a universal and eternal people, somebody has to know it. I guess my lot was cast to be Lewis, or maybe there are other people who do it too. But um, I guess that's just kind of how it how it turned out. It's kind of a parallel to what the early church fathers spoke about. Um, they spoke about despoiling the Egyptians. So whereas the children of Israel despoiled the Egyptians before they left. The Christian leaders of the early church, they saw themselves doing the same thing with pagan culture and pagan philosophy, scouring through it and finding what truth they could and putting it to the service of the faith. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think this is something that unfortunately Christians get a bad rap for. I mean, I think every every year there are articles in, in, in uh, uh, that we see about, oh, Christian, you know, Christmas comes from um, Saturnian or whatever other pagan holiday it was. And I, I have to say, obviously, I'm not I'm not Christian, but I read these. I'm like, I don't know why that makes it bad. I mean, in <laughs> fact, I think taking something and uh, and raising it and making it spiritual and holy, that seems like what we should be trying to do. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that coupled with terrible scholarship makes those articles incredibly <laughs> irritating. But are there many other people in Judaism who read Lewis, or are are you it? Are you the anomaly? I, I, so I, I don't want to say I'm unique, but I'd probably say there are not too many. There's some, okay, based on the number of people who read my blog, there's like probably zero. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think there. I I, I think I am I, I think I am a bit of an anomaly. And um, you know, Judaism itself has produced a huge amount of literature. Um, one of the things that uh, that I heard from a friend who was. Uh, who was extremely insightful? He showed me the opening cover of a of, of a of a Jewish book, and on each Jewish book, there's like a there's like a picture of a gate, like the type of ancient gate they would find in, in the city. And he said to me, you know, Jews never stayed long enough in any one place to be able to build cities, so instead they built books. <laughs> and so there's a huge Jewish literature, and so given all that, it's like hard to find time to 
like go outside of, mm. uh, of our own faith. But, you know, some of us try to anyway. <laughs> Obviously, you've written a lot about Narnia. So I, I'm really just going to turn it over to you. What do you want to talk about with regards to the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, you know, I think um, I would I would imagine that a lot of your a lot of your listeners are wondering the same thing, same same type of questions that that, that we've been discussing, which is why is it that someone who is who is not Christian um, is interested in the Chronicles of Narnia? So so the way I like to formulate it is as follows. So you've spoken about on your on your uh, on your podcast, David um, Lewis's. Um, meditations in a tool shed and looking along the looking along the beam rather than looking um, at the beam. And of course, it's Lucy um, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader who looks along the beam, right, and sees the cross um, and the albatross, which is of course, of course, Aslan. But um, I think that if we if we think about it, and and um, Dr. Ward speaks about this in his book, what Lewis was trying to do for us in the Chronicles of Narnia was to set a um, an environment in which we can look along his beam and find God um, through each one of these seven demigods, right? Each one of each one of the planets, and um, and and obviously he did a wonderful job, and the book is very popular. But you know, from my perspective, I'm looking at the beam at a slightly different angle, right? So we can we can both be in the tool shed, David, you and I, and we can both be looking along the beam. And we'll see in general the same thing. But if we're slightly off, I'm looking from a slightly different angle, then we'll have a slightly different perspective and we'll see somewhat different things. So when I look along the beam of Narnia, so of course I see um, Aslan's sacrifice as representative of Jesus and some of the other um, uh, obviously Christian um, Christian ideas that come up. Um, and sometimes I'll miss them. I remember reading um, uh, reading Planet Narnia for the first time and uh, we discussed, uh, he, was, he was discussing uh, The Horse and His Boy, which you're going to read uh, this, this season, if I remember correctly, because you're going in the right order, of course, in the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, <laughs> And, um, and, 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 and it talks about the, 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 time, the, um, the moment in the book where Aslan reveals himself to Shasta and he says, you know, um, I am, it says, right, myself. I am myself, myself there. Thank you. So myself three times and, 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 and word writes in Planet Narnia like three times for the Trinity. And I'm like, oh, man, how stupid it could have been to miss that one. Like, you know, any Christian would have obviously gotten that in a second. I like totally missed oh, it. Oh, you would like, be surprised. Really stupid. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, so sometimes I'll miss something because they don't, you know, because I'm not a Christian, but, but hopefully, and one of, one of the things I'm trying to do in my blog is because I have a slightly different perspective, perhaps I can add some color or some flavor, some embellishments on what, what would be a standard Christian view, knowing, of course, that C.S. Lewis himself was Christian and not necessarily thinking that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia for an Orthodox Jew like myself to be inspired. Um, so let me, if you don't mind, I'll give, it, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, I'll, I'll give a somewhat, what I think is a, first of all, start with what I think is a somewhat straightforward example, which is, um, and again, because this is coming out on Passover, you know, in Judaism, if you're near a holiday or, you know, when, whenever you talk, you have to you have to talk about the closest holiday or the Torah reading of that week. Like yeah, you know, that's that's like the first thing you have to say. So we can do so we can do that here as well. Um, let me let me I'm going to read and this is this is in our notes. So maybe you can maybe you see it uh, there, David. Um, I'll read a, a sentence that I that I copied here from the seder. So the seder is the ritual of the pa of Passover night, um, which involves 
eating, talking, singing, a bunch of uh, a bunch of other things to commemorate and relive the exodus from Egypt. And so there's a line in the in the Haggadah, which is the book that contains all the instructions and the readings, which says, in every generation, they attempt to destroy us, meaning the enemies of the Jews attempt to destroy, to destroy us. But the Holy One, blessed be he, saves us from their hands. And that, to me, is exactly what the eldest dwarf says to Rillian at the end of the silver chair. Right. He says, those northern witches always mean the same thing, but in every age, they have a different plan for getting it. Hmm. So I don't know if C.S. Lewis was familiar with uh, with Haggadah and the, you know, the rituals of the past overnight or not. But to me, that was like, OK, like this is where this must be. It's the same idea. It's the same idea that evil comes up perhaps in different guises, but it's always there and every generation is there. And, you know, good people have to fight that. Um, in every generation. In An Experiment in Criticism, Lewis says something to the effect of that each author, they shouldn't be a spectacle, but they should be a pair of spectacles through which you look into a different a different world or look at the world in a new way. And I think that's exactly what you bring to this. Mm-hmm. And I would even be a little bold and suggest that some of these things could be in there purposefully, but subconsciously on Lewis's part. Because one of the big things he talks about, particularly uh, when you pair it with, say, something like Planet Narnia mm-hmm. and his essay, The Kappa Element in Romance, that what you consume, the environment you create, is naturally going to, it's, it's naturally going to affect everything. Therefore, somebody that is reading all of scripture, including the Torah, it's actually not entirely surprising that if things come out of us that we weren't consciously thinking of. I, I think that's correct. And maybe it takes someone to kind of like, you know, nudge you a little bit in the in, in, in the arm and say, hey, did you mean this? And mm-hmm. the answer is, well, yeah, now thinking about it, I did. Let me, let me let me throw another one at you, David. I think I think you'll like this one. Obviously, you've you know, you're, you're, you've been familiar with Narnia for for a really long time, as, as have I. And one thing that like, I realized only a couple of years ago was um, the description of the of the Fawn Tumnus. When he's first introduced, right? So he's he's walking along, he's carrying a, an umbrella and a bunch of and a bunch of parcels, and he's and Lewis says, "What with the parcels and the snow, looked just as if he had been doing his Christmas shopping, right?" Now, if there's one thing that Tumnus was obviously not doing, it was <laughs> Christmas shopping because it was never it was never Christmas. Mm-hmm. So what? So what's the point? <laughs> so why is why is Lewis? Um, suggesting that that's what Tomnus is doing. And, and and to me, this brings in mind another statement from, from our sages in the Talmud, um, who say that in the in the, in the story, in again back to Genesis, um, Abraham is visited by the three men, who, at least in uh, in, in, in from a Jewish tradition, we, we generally regard as angels, um, who are coming to inform him of the future birth of, of his son Isaac. Um, and surprisingly, perhaps, he feeds the angels matzah. Um, which is unleavened bread and the bread that we eat on on Passover. And so our, our, our sages are want to know, like you know, these are guests. You should give them full bread. Why are you giving them unleavened bread? And they say, well, it's obvious that Abraham must be celebrating Passover. Um, and that's a bit of a question because, of course, Passover didn't happen yet. So what is Abraham doing celebrating Passover if it, if it didn't happen? But I think I, I think the answer is that you know there are certain um, uh, there are certain events, um, redemption. Um, the coming of a Messiah, right? God's fulfillment of the world that are universal and that have to happen. And so it's true that Abraham didn't know the events of, of, of Passover. Um, 
But he knew a redemption had to happen. It had to occur. And so he felt it. And on that day in which his future children would celebrate Passover, he knew that there was something, as it were, in the atmosphere that called for a commemoration of, of redemption. And to me, that's what Tumnus is doing. And Tumnus is, is, is really, um, despite his, his initial fault, um, is one of the most positive characters to me in the Chronicles of Narnia. And so given his refined character, he would feel that redemption. And the day that Lucy walked through the wardrobe is the day that that redemption began. And even though, even though neither of them at that moment knew that redemption would happen and that Father Christmas would eventually come back. So it's kind of like a prefigurement. He's, he's, exactly. he's, he's acting out what has not actually yet happened, but will. Exactly, exactly. And, and to me, like, it was, you know, I don't know how I would have answered the question besides saying, oh, well, it's foreshadowing. Um, but that's not very satisfying. But, you know, <laughs> but, the, but knowing the Talmudic statement, um, I think allowed me to understand a little bit more about what C.S. Lewis was trying to get at. Or maybe he wasn't trying to get at, but was, I, I, I think it's still interesting. It's definitely a very Christian way of reading a text because particularly in the medievals, when they would look into the earlier parts of the Bible, they would see typology. They would see prefiguring of events that were to happen because God is not only the author of scripture, but the author of nature and history. And therefore he, he writes his story, not only with text on a page, but with events. And so that's why Christians look to earlier events and they see what was going to come with what we regard as the new covenant. And related to that, I, I, I did wonder, because I think the first thing that everybody thinks about when they, when they hear about your project is what do you do with the stone table? How do you understand that? Do you just simply you know, sort of regard that as, oh, that's the Christian bit of the story that we can't get around? But down this vein of thought, I was thinking that Christians look and see things like the sacrifice of Isaac, mm -hmm. the Passover lamb, the temple sacrifices, as foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. Can you put that sort of lens onto Aslan and the Stone Table and and view the uh, Old Testament events in that regard? So I, I try I tried to go down that that path, and I've not I've not been able to formulate it to my satis satisfaction. Mm, and let me try. I couldn't to, let, me try to, <laughs> let me let me try to explain. Let me try to explain why, at least from my perspective, you know the 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 binding of of Isaac and his you know aborted aborted sacrifice, of course, plays a major role um, in Judaism in terms of theology and also in terms of even even liturgy when it comes to the high when it comes to the high holidays. Um, but one one thing that comes out not on the high holidays but more of the uh, of the sadder days where we commemorate negative events in Jewish history. Um, we always go back. We go back to Isaac, and 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 the, and the reason is because though Isaac was spared, his children sometimes were not. Mm -hmm. And what Abraham was doing, as you met, as as you mentioned before, the way the way Judaism formulates it is that what our forefathers did is a sign for for the children. And so, as it were, one one could argue Abraham had to go through the sacrifice of Isaac. Now. Of course, at the end of the day, he, he he couldn't because there had to be progeny still from from Abraham, but but if he didn't, it wouldn't have allowed Abraham's children to sacrifice their own children when the time came. Mm. I, I, have, I this is this is one little bit of the Talmud that I had actually encountered, where yes. some rabbis mm. suggested that the value of the sacrifices in the temple actually came from Abraham's willingness to offer his own son. Mm. Correct, correct, and so you know thematically. Um, there's a lot to be to be said for for all of that, 
Um, what bothers me, and, and then and then and then our sages say, I, sh- I should have mentioned this exactly what you said, David, that that place, um, Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed or didn't sacrifice his son, that is the place that the temple was eventually built. Right, that is uh, the Temple Mount that we still, you know, that we still know of today. Um, and so I'm good with that, like with the stone table, except for the part that it breaks. <laughs> and that's what and that and that's what's bothered me. Like it shouldn't break because like the story of Abraham and Isaac lives on forever. And I have to admit, like even from a Christian perspective, I'm still not f- sure why it breaks because you know Jesus' sacrifices for Christians also lives on forever. So why should the table break? I have to admit. So like that's where I get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Christians would offer a few explanations as to why it would break. One would be perhaps that, as the Epistle of Hebrews says, that Christ was sacrificed once for all. That whatever right. sacrifices that have been happening on this table, they needed to happen no more. Because now the perfect offering was 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 made uh, in the person of Aslan. Therefore, that was the end of those sacrifices. Right. I've also heard people interpret the magic and the deeper magic in terms of fulfillment of what came before. There, there are some varieties in that, but it, it is a very interesting question to, to pose. Why exactly does the table break? I suppose it's just because he didn't, he wasn't in a tomb, so there wasn't a stone that could be rolled away to show that yeah, this all happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've been stuck on that one, but, but I do like the magic and the pre-magic because we do have a, 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 a we do have a similar parallel in Judaism as well. Um, the, uh, the Talmud tells us that there were a number of things that were created before creation, that existed before creation. And one of them was, um, was tshuva, which is repentance. Um, the, that ability to, to repent and to um, uh, fix what was broken is not in the natural world. It's something that's almost supernatural and therefore had to be created before creation itself. And that's, of course, what happens exactly to Edmund, right? Edmund is, is, um, does, he is the repentant. He does repent. Um, and even though, you know, the, the, the white witch saw a rebel and said, well, he's mine, because how can he go back from um, basically ratting out his, his siblings? And Aslan says, well, no, you don't know the deeper magic. You don't know what happened before creation. And before creation, repentance um, is a lie. And for anyone that has read the Torah, you find there's an awful lot of sibling rivalry that goes on there as well. <laughs> If repentance wasn't possible, they'd be in deep trouble. You also had one example from The Last Battle. What was that? This is something that, 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 well, also appropriate as you're going to be reading The Horse and His Boy. The the whole question of Kalerman poetry is one that I I struggled with for a while. Because if you read Kalerman poetry or the, the, the few snippets that we have throughout mainly The Horse and His Boy, they generally don't seem so horrible. Um, so for example, I'll, I'll, I'll use one example and then, um, and then try to show actually how, how it is wrong. Ashish says, um, when the Tarkan comes into his home and eventually buys Shasta, he says, natural affection is stronger than soup and offspring more precious than carbuncles. And that seems like, yeah, I mean, we do value our children a lot. They should be more precious than carbuncles. So on one hand, that doesn't actually seem so bad. Um, on the other hand, he then turns around and sells Shasta. Right. So obviously, maybe children are worth more than carbuncles, but they're not worth the 70 or 40 crescents that he's eventually going to get for Shasta. And it's not only Shasta, Shasta is not the only child who sold in the horse and his boy. Aravis is sold. 
right, to a, to a suitor that she doesn't like. And so, yeah, maybe um, maybe Aravis's father wouldn't have sold her for a bunch of carbuncles, but he clearly was happy to sell her for an uh, alliance with a strong Carloman household. And then, in fact, the Tisrak's own son, Rabadash, was sold. Um, the, the Tisrak um, happily sent him to war in a desperate attempt to take over Archenland and, and Narnia, knowing that would likely sacrifice his life. And Tisrak says, "Well, if he fails, that's okay. I've got you know, I've got seventeen other sons. So what difference does it make?" And so, yes, on the surface, the poet um, seems okay, but its application is uh, is is wrong. And in fact, if you look in the Bible and you look at especially books like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, which have similar, which are going to, which have similar statements to a lot of Carloman poetry, you'll see that the Bible generally gets it right, while the while the Carloman poets get it get it wrong. And so there's a bunch of stuff on my blog about uh, about that. But one thing that I haven't yet written about, because I've been kind of saving it for such an occasion, is there's one piece of poetry that um, that we should take seriously, and that's in the last that's in the last battle. And the, the the person who says that uh, that piece of poetry is is Emeth. Um, so Emeth is, is is a Hebrew word meaning truth, and Emeth is the character who eventually, though initially a um, uh, a servant of uh, of Tash, sees the truth and becomes a servant of of Aslan. And so when he says something, we probably should pay attention because he is the person the person of truth. And so when he when he when Emeth meets. Um, Peter the High King and the rest of their Anarnian heroes in this um, uh, afterlife um, of the last battle. So he says the following, I know not whether you are my friend or my foe, but I should count it my honor to have you as either. Has not one of the poets said, here he quotes a Carloman poet, a noble friend is the best gift and a noble enemy the next best. Well, what's the difference between an enemy and a noble enemy, right? What makes an, what makes an enemy noble? And so I think the answer is, and and, and David, you, you you touched on this in, in in the when you were speaking about friendship within the four loves, a noble enemy to me is one who is also searching for the truth. Hmm. And while it is true that at the moment um, those who are those who are looking for the truth may be enemies because they may disagree with each other as to what truth is, um, it's a noble enemy because they're everyone is after the same goal, right? Everyone's trying to find truth. And so that's differentiates a noble enemy from an enemy who may not be who, who may not be noble, and um, to me that's what Emeth is, right? Emeth, though he was following a different religion, was also seeking to find truth, hmm. and because he was, he eventually finds it, and so he could be a noble enemy. But but the truth is that that Peter um, uh, Peter replies to this, right? He is Peter. He's Peter the High King, Peter the Magnificent. And he says, sir, I do not know that there need to be any war between you and us, right? And I think it's interesting because Peter doesn't say, oh, no, we're not enemies, we're pals, right? He says, maybe we are enemies, but that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that there has to be a war, hmm. right? The war, can, as it were, can be fought on different grounds. It doesn't have to be a battle. It could be a war of who is more kind, who brings more comfort to those who are sick, right? Who helps the struggling orphans. Right. Those are wars that should be fought, um, as opposed to battles of, of violence and the truth of a, a of a religion. While you know maybe a philosophical question plays out on on the ground, it plays out with its, its adherence. How much do its adherents adhere to the religion? Adhere to that which is good and that which is that which is truthful. Mm-hmm. So to me, like I'm MF in a sense for. 
for C.S. Lewis, <laughs> you know, because I'm coming from that other perspective and, you know, eventually we'll find out what happens. But mm. I do not think there needs to be war between us. Just saying. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so. let's, let's move on from Narnia. I want, to, I want to sample some other things that you've written about and spoken about. I wanted to touch on some things that I've seen in Torah from Narnia and on tradition online. Firstly, I heard that The Screwtape Letters was your second favorite Lewis book, <laughs> That's uh, which we read last season. What are, what are your thoughts yes. there? So uh, The Screwtape Letters is just so well written. I mean, the perspective um, that, that Lewis takes, it's almost unique as far as I can tell. Um, definitely, as far as, as far as I know, it does not have a parallel in Judaism. And I think that Lewis uses it so well to speak to modern man. And what I especially liked was that there were a number of things that really spoke to me. So, for example, even in the first in the first letter, he's already Lewis already notes science and religion are friends. They are not enemies. We were just talking about enemies. What are enemies? Science and religion are friends because they both seek truth. Now, it's true that as two disciplines are going to seek truth, they may at times disagree, but that doesn't mean that they are at war. And Lewis says it explicitly, right? Lewis says, keep, you know, keep science away from your patient because it's going to allow him to wake up his reason and, you know, and, and, and the search for truth, rather feed him on pseudoscience. And that's something that, as myself a scientist, I've experienced a, a number of times, which is people always come to me and say, you know, well, you know, you're a physicist. How can you, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you make, um, uh, physics fit with the Bible? And I'm like, I don't know, but it really actually doesn't bother me very much because if two, modes of, of finding truth don't agree, well, probably something has to be studied more, right? Maybe the physics needs a little more. Maybe our Bible reading needs a little bit more. Maybe we're not understanding something, but that's okay. We'll figure it out eventually if we're really striving for, for the truth. So I really like that Lewis did that like you know, right at the beginning. And then, um, uh, you know, David, go, um, the, the, the former chief rabbi of the, uh, of, of the British Commonwealth, um, the rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs actually just wrote a book, uh, yeah, wrote a book called, um, uh, The Great Partnership in which he, he discusses this as well. But that already like grabbed me. And then he has this great line that said, you know, that says there have been some sad cases amongst the modern physicists. And I'm like, that is a great, you know, that is a great line. And, and I can say, and, 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 and for personal experience, you know, whenever I, you know, whenever I'm at conferences or anything that, and I'm eating kosher food or whatever it is that, you know, that I'm doing this different, like nobody ever, no, I've never had a scientist attack me for my religious beliefs. Never. Hmm. I mean, I've discussed the, I've discussed it with them. People are curious and, that's, and, and I'm, I'm totally cool with that, but like never had anybody attack me for my, for my beliefs. So I think that is much, very much more in the realm of pseudoscience than, than science itself. So that's definitely one thing that, you know, kind of grabbed me right at the beginning. But then there are other things that I really like about Lewis. For example, his idea of concentric circles hmm. and the idea of, you know, pushing, um, uh, from, from Screwtape's perspective, of course, pushing all that is good out and all that is bad you know inwards and and i really liked what he says about the the british and say again sorry david the british being like particularly horrible about this because they're the ones who get up and scream about how they're going to torture the germans and then he shows up and they're going to give him you know serve him some tea and crumpets or whatever you know whatever it is he's going to serve him and like and i think i think that's really good because i think we find the same thing in judaism as well there are times when we get up and we you know we'll either as part of liturgy or something like well let's just you know, we have to destroy our enemies and so on and so forth but like god forbid ever and some person ever show up we've never done anything horrible to them we never do anything bad to them we'd welcome them so 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 you really like that idea um as, as well except perhaps a, a few instances in judges 
for example, <laughs> if, if Jail invites you over for tea, maybe pass. <laughs> Yeah, so so Judges is a particularly um, uh, troubling um, book um, and speaks a lot to um, how things should not be rather than how things should be. I went round to friends for, for brunch after two families were meeting for the first time. He and I have been friends for a little while. And he said that uh, his kids are listening to the Bible on, on audio and their favorite book is Judges. <laughs> of course. <laughs> As long as they don't get like to the very end, that part is becomes a little bit too risque for children. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's push on. You also wrote a four part series of articles on what Lewis considered to be his best book, Till We Have Faces, and we went through that back in mm-hmm. season three. What were some of the things that you touched on there? Because this, well, this is a book. Let's just let's just say that this this is this is a book that so many people come to and they have no idea what to make of it. So, so I was definitely in that category. I have to admit, I, I, I had not read So We Have Faces until Reverend Mark Gottlieb, who was the one who interviewed me for the Judition podcast, said, hey, Jacob, you should really read So We Have Faces. And I'm like, oh, all right. So I, I read it once in like a day. And I was like, I don't. That doesn't make sense. So I read it again, like the next day. And then I actually, I actually listened to the entire season that you, that, that, that you did on, on So We Have Faces. And I was trying to like get a, get a handle on on what the, what the point is. Mm. And so there are a couple of things I didn't like. Only a couple. I, a couple. <laughs> Most people usually have a small list, apart from my co-host, Andrew. He has nothing <laughs> on that list. I, I appreciate like that C.S. Lewis is willing to build Christianity off of paganism. Mm. I, from, from my perspective as a Jew and what my religion is built off, I don't like that. Um, you know, I'm gonna. You know, Christians obviously have the right to decide, but how, how they view their own religion. But like for my religion, I did. That doesn't that doesn't sit very that doesn't sit very well with me. But but the other thing that bothered me, and they touch on on in the, in the blog, is like, why was C.S. Lewis so interested in the story of Psyche and Cupid? Like, all right, I mean, it's just another it's another myth. I mean, the Greeks and Romans have plenty of them. Like, what is it that um that that he that really that spoke to him and I think the answer to that is the end, right? How do you make the gods beautiful? And that's what um, any religion, I think, tries to do. Any any religion that's universal tries to do to humanity. Judaism is not a missionizing religion, but it's nevertheless um, a religion that wants to bring all of humanity close to the worship of the one God. And so that idea of making God beautiful is an eternal message for anyone who is um, of a religious bent. And so... How do we formulate the, a story, given that, for whatever reason it was, that C.S. Lewis likes the story of um, Psyche and Cupid? Like, let's take that story. What do we expect then from a story that ends in making the gods beautiful? Obviously, the idea of making Venus beautiful is irrelevant because that's not beauty in, in C.S. Lewis's eyes. What's beauty in his, in his eyes is Christianity. Right? So what we expect is that by the end of the book, the gods should be made beautiful, meaning that the society has taken on, at least if not full Christianity, you know, something approaching Christianity. And then the book itself is how, how does that happen, that a pagan society can transform in that way? And I think what we see is we see a number of different people um, and how they react to the pagan gods around them, right? So there are, there are those like uh, Oruel who, who hate the pagan gods. And I, that was one of the other things I didn't like. I, I don't like as much about um, 
about to be a thesis. Like, I think that C.S. Lewis is too hard on on Ruel. She has a lot of work, but I think she's. I actually think he's too hard. I think I, I think he was too hard on her. I don't, I actually don't think she's you know that negative a character, especially you know we have at the end. I'll open it so I can read it. I can read it explicitly here. Right, that um, Arnhem says about uh, Ruel. This book was all written by the Queen Ruel of Glom, who was the most wise, just, valiant, fortunate, and merciful of all the princes known in our parts of the world. Now, that description was true even before her last realization and her mm-hmm. last willingness to accept the gods. So, and that should count for something in my mind. So I don't like, you know, throwing a rule under the bus here because like she was, you know, Arnhem is correctly and accurately describing her. Um, so, so you have people like Ruel who see the gods, the pagan gods and hate them because they want human sacrifice and because they want blood and because they want you know, all the things that we see in the worship of, of, of Anget. Um, and then you have other people like Bardia and, you know, it's hard to find a more noble character than Bardia. Um, in anywhere what C.S. Lewis wrote. We can talk about Reepichief, right? But like, Varnia is a very, it's a very positive character. And he basically says, well, I'm not going to go against what the gods say. I'm not going to do this and that or whatever it is that the gods don't want. But like, at the end of the day, I want the gods, you know, the gods will stay in there and I'm, and I'm here and I don't want to do much. That's clearly not what we want, right? Mm-hmm. That's clearly not the Judeo-Christian values of having a personal god we can turn to in times of trouble and in times of, uh, in times when, when, when seeking comfort. But I would say it's something that we all do very easily. The idea of, I've attended temple. I went and received the Eucharist. I've been baptized. Okay, now we're good. So can you just stay over there and not invade my life? There's a section in Mere Christianity where Lewis says that we treat God like our taxes. We just kind of want to deal with him maybe once a year, give him a cut of what he's owed, and then we generally want him to stay away from us the rest of the time. That, that 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 is a fair point, and I agree with you. It does happen. It happens in Judaism too. Just so Christians shouldn't feel that that doesn't happen anywhere else. Um, but, yeah, but we expect better from Bardia, right? I mean, Bardia is such a positive character. We would expect better from him. Um, but then you have people like Psyche who can see through all that negative worship and actually see that gods should be loved, right? And of course, the other person in, in, in C.S. Lewis's um, works who does that is, is Emeth, who we spoke about before, right? Emeth sees through Tash and can love, even though he doesn't know, he, he thinks it's Tash. It's not, right? He thinks mm. it's Tash. But th- th- those to me are very, are very parallel characters. And, and note, that the uh, that the chief, um, the high priest in Gloom wears a bird's head, right? And <laughs> Tash is, is is a bird. So I think there's something. I think there's something to be said for that. But um, so that's so I think I think that's what happens. And and the question is, so Sanki goes and is taken by the by the god of the west wind. And what should have happened, right? If nothing else had occurred, if Aruel had never gone to see her. Or if Ruel had gone and said, okay, great, you know, I'm glad you're happy, I'm going home, what would have happened? Well, it doesn't look like anything would have happened. The West Wind and Psyche would have lived happily ever after. Um, and that kind of would have been the end, I think. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they would have had a child and that child would have been a Christ's figure that would bring, that would, that, that would have brought Christianity, um, possibly. But it doesn't, it doesn't necess- it's not obvious that that's what would have happened. Um, what makes gods beautiful, what makes, what leads to the gods becoming beautiful is that Aruel forces Psyche to rebel against the, um, against the pagan gods. And she's not wrong in my mind because the pagan gods are hateful, right? And the pagan gods are, you know, how could it be that the gods want a human as a lover, 
And, and so Seiki, and there's another question, which I still haven't totally figured out, which is why does Seiki actually listen to Aruel? Um, you know, she says she hopes that her, her husband will, will forgive her and is likely to be more forgiving than Aruel herself, which is certainly true. But still, if she really loves, you know, if she really loves her husband more, she should have sacrificed Aruel, right? That would have been the correct thing to do. But, okay, but let's put that one on the side for the, the, side for the moment. <laughs> so we know what happens, of course, and, and Psyche goes and has to fulfill her tasks. And the, West, the God of the West Wind comes and says, oh, well, you, you two are Psyche. And what does that mean? And, and to me, what it means is that as, as positive a character as Psyche is, as much as she loves the gods, she can't do it alone. Um, she can't bring about the one, the true, true religion on, on her own because she can't relate to everybody else, right? MF, you know, can see the truth, but he can't teach the truth to everybody. He doesn't, he, it's impossible. Psyche would have just been happy staying with her God, right? Staying with the God of the West Wind. Um, but the society is not ready yet. It's like, it's like Elijah, this is the, the parallel he makes, like Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet loves God, right? And there was no one like him, but he was a failure in terms of convincing the northern kingdom of Israel and its citizens to worship the one God, right? There's this entire scene on, on Mount, Mount Carmel where he's able to bring down the fire to consume the sacrifices that he makes to the God as opposed to the prophets of the Baal and the, and the idols who are unable to. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the Jews say, yes, our God is God. You know, God, God, God is the one. And then the next day, the evil Jezebel says, I want, I want Elijah's head. And nobody seems to like say, well, you know, that's not a very bad idea. We're going to rebel against you. Right, so Elijah Elijah fails. No one doubts that he loves God, right? But sometimes people who are so so close to God can't bring it about, can't bring that feeling to the rest of humanity because everyone else looks at them and says, "Well, yeah, you're up there. Who are who are we?" And so, in order to prepare Gloom for the coming of Christianity, Gloom itself has to be transformed, and that's what. Aruel does in my mind, right? So she she fixes or she improves three pillars of Gloom society that, in, to me, are parallel to the um, to the tasks of Psyche herself, right? So she transforms the castle um, and the laws, right? So she gets rid of a bunch of slaves, right? And we know how how the castle was in the time of King Trom. There are little bastard kids running around all over the place, right? There are slaves all over, and as long as King Trom gets what he wants. Everyone else can do what they want, you know, he doesn't care. And so Bata can be this horrible blackmailer and, you know, and, 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 and mafia kingpin and, <laughs> and, and nobody cares because King Trom is happy, you know, so King Trom doesn't, you know, doesn't put a stop to it. But, but Aruel solves all of that. She brings order, right, to the castle. And by bringing order to the castle, she then goes and clearly states the laws of Gloam and has them chiseled you know, somewhere in the public, in, in the public square. So everybody can know. And that's, you know, that's so important because how can a society be moral and just if the laws are not clear, right? Nobody would know how to, you know, what is right, what is wrong, what they'll be punished for, what they won't be punished for. That's exactly what King Trump did. He didn't like someone, so he killed them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that was it. There were no laws. She brings order and law. And that's kind of like um, a Seiki having to separate all the seeds, right? Because the, the mixture of seeds speaks to disorder, and the separation of them speaks to order. Um, and then Arua goes, and she expands on the agriculture. Um, it expands on the economy of Gloam, 
right? So Gloam was an agricultural-based society, an agrarian society, but they have these silver mines that no one ever seems to care about instead, except as a way to kill people. Well, that's not very smart. And of course, Overall realizes that and turns the, uh, turns the mines into something productive, not only productive in terms of actually getting silver, which is very important, um, but also productive in terms of finding good people. Slaves who are able to be industrious um, can earn their freedom through the mines. Right? So she transforms the entire economic state of Gloam. Right? She also widens the, the she deepens the Shemit, right? So she allows more trade. There are a number of things that she does um, in that sense. And that's very much, of course, like Psyche uh, getting the golden fleece from the sheep, right? It's uh, Aruau who takes the punishment for it. She's the one who has to go through all the work. And Psyche can just, you know, take the take take the gold. Um, that, of course, and the gold representing the economy of, of Gloam. And then, um, finally, she actually transforms the House of Unged itself, right? So it's um, it, it's worth, um, you mentioned before we started, Jerusalem and Athens. Well, that's exactly what happens, right? Who is the fox's best student? It's Arnon, the high priest, right? He is the first one to read all the books that, fox, that the fox um, uh, buys. He is the one who um, uh, starts speaking of the gods in a philosophical way. And that seems to be a positive, Right in the in the book, that seems to be he's he, Arnhem is actually the only one who calls the fox by his real name in the entire book. Where how did that happen? Like how did that? It, it's um, probably because they were working together to find to do the best for Gloam, right? And that's and that's good because they were again both trying to find truth. So even if though they may have been coming from different perspectives, they were able to work together in in order to do that. But that was also necessary in order to prepare Gloam for the coming of the of the true religion, right? For the coming of Christianity. And then, you know, but the last, the, you know, the last step, though, has to be taken by Psyche, because if not, you know, Arua did it all for, for herself, right? She did it for, to keep herself busy. She did it because she was just wanted to be the opposite of her father. And for whatever reasons she had, they weren't, they weren't religious. They weren't done in order to make the gods beautiful, even though they served to help make the gods beautiful. But Psyche is the one who can then come back. And now Gloom is prepared. They could listen to her, as it were. Right when she starts preaching the true religion, and so that's her job then to go to the deadlands, um, which perhaps is the philosophy of Greece, which does not allow for the you know, for the true gods, but she can bring the beauty back from the deadlands and actually you know spread um, Christianity. Though that part is not in the book. Wow, I I I wanted to interrupt so many times when I was like, oh, I like that. It's like, oh, well, I disagree with that. I think all we've definitely proved is that you're definitely coming back on the show. I'm getting Andrew, and we're, we're going to talk a lot of this out. You bring some really interesting ideas, some of which I like, some of which I don't like, and we will hash this out. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, this season we've been going through the four loves, and you were invited on the Tradition Podcast to talk about your essay which was called The Four Facets of the Love of God. And you yes. do draw on Lewis's work. In the little bit of time that we've got left, what do you talk about there? Sure. So, so I was taking a different perspective. And, and this was really one of the first things that struck me when I first said to myself, I can actually use this in my, in my life. When I was, um, I was I, maybe I shouldn't do this with Matt not on the show, but, you know, I found myself um, a number of years ago, okay, a couple of, more than a couple of decades ago, in a similar position to Matt. Um, all my, many of my friends were already married and I was like, I couldn't find anyone. And I was like, you know, disappointed. And, and I was like, is this whole thing like really worth it? Do I have to like bother with it? It's such a pain in the neck. And I said to myself, well, you know what? If I want to be able to love God, I have to know what it's like to love someone else. And I remember, I remember like talking to my friends about, about this new philosophical perspective that I had, that I had come up with. 
And, and then I found it effectively, to my mind, in The Four Loves. Now, of course, Lewis doesn't formulate it that way, though I think he does a little bit more in some, some of his other works. But Well, he, he says that the highest doesn't stand without the lowest, which correct, means an correct. earthly eros can contribute to your understanding of higher loves. Correct. That's, that's what he says. But in the, in the Four Loves, it's the idea of any, lo- any natural love is not going to remain, right? The loves become a god, the loves become a demon, and therefore you need to bring you need to bring God into them. And I said, well, you know, these are interesting categories because I'm I'm not a philosopher, I'm a I'm a physicist, so I never heard of different categories of love before until I read the four loves. I'm like, you know what? These can be useful because um, this probably discusses this probably gives us gives a way of how do we love God, and and we see these different perspectives in Jewish in, Jew, in Jewish liturgy and in fact in the Bible itself. So. Um, so, for example, in um, Hosea, which I think is how you pronounce it in English, Hosea. Um, and mm-hmm. Hosea, and then we call it Song of Songs. I think I think Christians I, I call it Song of Solomon. Well, Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. Okay, right. So, so the, the the model is the model between God and His people, or God and an individual, is that of man and wife. Um, but in our prayers, it's certainly not like that, right? We refer to we refer to God as our Father, our King. Um, and in many other ways too, we refer to God as our shepherd. We refer to God as the one who allows us to do to do anything. So, how do you take all these these all of these perspectives should inform us into the great commandment of loving God? How do we how do we do that? Like, what what, what does that mean? Can we love God um, as a as a lover? Can we love God as a father? Can we love God as a as, as an acquaintance or as a friend? And so, um, you know, for, for example, for like, for, for, for acquaintance, for um, affection, the first one, right? So I always think of, you, you mentioned before the famous, the famous Jewish movie about, about Tevye the Milkman. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Fiddler, and Fiddler on the Roof. Thank you. <laughs> Blanking on the name. So Fiddler on the Roof. And like, what is the relationship between Tevye and God, right? It doesn't really seem to be like a relation between lovers, for sure not. But like, you know, it sounds like, God, you know, I can't believe this is happening too. And if Tevye ever, ever, ever like found out, not that this is true, but if he ever found out that God wasn't there, like he'd be really disappointed. Does he love God as a friend? Does he love God as a, you know, as, as a lover? No, of course not. But God is the one who's always there for him. Mm-hmm. Right? He's the one that he can always, that Tevye can always complain to. And so that means something and that and that that is who god is god is the one that we that we as as humans any human can always always rely on he is always there for us um even if we don't you know perhaps notice it or if we kind of treat him as the trusty you know the, the crusty gardener who uh who, who lewis talks about in, in in his chapter on affection so that's one of the, what, what, what i tried to what i tried to write about in this in this article was that you know can we approach god with all of these loves and how hopefully doing that Exactly how, how how you how you said, David. We need the natural loves to inform us as to how the spiritual love, the love of God, should be. Again, from our perspective, you know, how should we love God? Now, how God loves us. Um, I'm not saying that's not important, but how do we fulfill the commandment of loving of loving God? And so that was kind of like my 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 thought process in that. And and as you said, the use of uh, of, of Lewis's concept of transposition. Um, that the, the highest can't stand, can't, the highest cannot stand without the lowest. How we need those natural loves to give us a, a glimpse, um, if not necessarily a full picture, of, of of how we should love God.
What I love about what you just said is it's kind of a vindication for what I said at the end of our study of the four loves, that I think Lewis is trying to give us a sketch here. You described as giving us some categories. He's giving us some stuff to work with as we then ask the bigger questions and try and tease out the details. So I don't think he gives us a completely tied up systematic understanding of love from top to tail. He's not. He's drawing us, giving us some sketches, giving us some things to think about, a set of vocabulary to describe the kinds of loves. And then we ourselves then have to do the hard work still of thinking about it further and even worse than that, actually trying to practice some of this stuff. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the hardest part for me in that article was, can we love God as charity? Because, mm. you know, on the surface, that's, that's, uh, you know, that, that should be a, a no, of course, of course you can't, God gives us everything. How can we love as charity? But, but Lewis actually says that, um, God gives humans this amazing gift, this amazing ability to love God as gift love, which on the surface is, is just completely insane. How can you say that there should be gift love? How can a finite, you know, human have gift love for an infinite, infinite God? But, but he, but he does. And we see it, we see it actually with Abraham himself, that after Abraham, after his war with four kings. So, um, there's a, there's a statement there that's, there's some of the, some of the pronouns are unclear, but some of the, the way some of our, uh, our commentaries read it is that, um, God considered Abraham's love for him as tzedakah, right? As righteousness or charity. And so, you know, Abraham had been preaching the love of God for his entire life and he, he relied on God. He did every, you know, God did everything for him. He knew that God was the center uh, of his world. Nonetheless, right, God perceived Abraham's love for him as one of charity. Um, and so I think God does give humans that, that amazing gift that we, mm. can, you know, we, we can love him in that way. The thing that comes to mind there is in mere Christianity where Lois talks about the son who comes to his father and said, give me tuppence so I can buy you a gift. But the father isn't winning out of, out of this exchange, really, but he actually also <laughs> is. Because he, wa he, he wants his son to love him. And to, to pull an example uh, from the book of Samuel, when there's a, a famine in the land, David is told to go and offer sacrifice at this particular place. And he comes to the guy's farm and he says, take everything you want. You can have the land. You can have all of the oxen and everything else that you need for the sacrifice. And the line that always sticks with me is David replies that I will not offer the Lord a sacrifice which costs me nothing. David wants to give something of himself to God. And I think I think that's the very the very the very deepest thing because how can you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength without wanting to give Him your very self? I, I think that's exactly right, and I think we saw it also. I think we see it also in the building of the tabernacle of of the Jews in the desert. Right, God asks them to give presents to Him to build the tabernacle so that He can rest among them. Right, He doesn't need a tabernacle to rest amongst His people, right? obviously, but He wants His people to give. Um, he wants them to be part of building a structure that He can you know, dwell in, knowing, of course, that an infinite God can never physically dwell in a finite structure. Yakov, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really fun. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been great. And uh, hopefully I've been able to give a slightly different perspective on some, uh, some C.S. Lewis's works. Absolutely. Now I hear the final call for drinks at the bar. So to wrap things up, can you tell people where they can go to find out more about you? Sure. So any, anyone who's interested can go to my blog. It's uh, torahfromnarnia.blogspot.com. And um, you know, can email me at the same, uh, at the same address, torahfromnarnia uh, at gmail.com. I'm always happy to hear from people. And there'll be links in the show notes. 
Thanks again to Yakov for coming on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening, our patron supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Uh, please follow us on social media, please write us reviews wherever you listen to this podcast. And please join us next time, when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.